title is Harvesting a Heart of Wisdom. I'm particularly pleased with that title. I can say that because I didn't come up with that title. It does sound very interesting, though, doesn't it? I mean, uh, uh, Harvesting a Heart of Wisdom. Uh, I wish I could hear an exposition of Psalm 90 that would develop that title. <laughs> but alas, I am not. Uh, uh, so if you really want to hear about harvesting a heart of wisdom, uh, that's why you came. My apologies. Please feel free to slip out during the Bible reading and prayer and locate something else. Uh, my title is uh, An Exposition of Psalm 90, which is a professor's title, uh, as you can tell. With that, let me go ahead and read from Psalm 90. As I told you, I just came back from the UK. I use the uh, New American Standard Bible, or as I was uh, compelled to describe it in the UK, the New Colonial Rebels Study Bible, which is appropriate for the 4th of July weekend, don't you think? So Psalm 90, reading from the New American Standard Version. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man back into dust and say, Return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening it fades and withers away. For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. For soon it is gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Do return, O Lord, how long will it be? And be sorry for your servants. O satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us. In the years we have seen evil, let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children, that the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and confirm the, for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the opportunity we have together to just fellowship and enjoy the rich blessing of those of like precious faith in this church, in this setting, at this time. We thank you, Lord, for the many years of blessing from your word that this church has enjoyed, not just for those who have been privileged to be here, to sit under the exposition of your word, but those of us who have, for many years, enjoyed that blessing through 
the ministry of recordings, or radio. It's had a profound impact upon untold thousands. And we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity we have here. We thank you for all of those that are participating today. We thank you for the other sessions that are going on right now and those that will continue throughout this month. We ask your blessing upon all of them. Now, Lord, I want to ask your blessing upon each one here. There are so many stories. There are so many needs. There are so many who come today with some heavy hearts and some, some maybe even without much thought about why, but with a subtle and deep expectation that to hear your word is always profitable, and that's what we desire. And you know my heart, Lord, I pray that the vessel would be unheard and unseen. The Spirit would bring out the truth of your word to each heart and apply it to the various needs that only you know and only you could supply. Above all, we ask that the words of our mouths and the thoughts of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Worlds on worlds are rolling ever, from creation to decay, like the bubbles on a river, sparkling, bursting, born away. Percy Bysshe Shelley, poet. Life is but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour on the stage, and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. William Shakespeare, playwright. (coughs) Lord, make me know my end, and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath, Surely every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they made an uproar for nothing. Psalm 39, verses 4 through 6, a psalm of David. Psalm 90 is titled, A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. Uh, A few dry facts at the beginning here. This is the only psalm of Moses in the Psalter. However, Moses did write other psalms and songs Exodus 15, Deuteronomy chapter 32. This psalm, however, says W.S. Plummer, differs from both of his other compositions. This is likely the oldest psalm in the Psalter. This is the only psalm of Moses. Um, As I've already said, it is the first psalm in the fourth book of the Psalms, and only one of three in this fourth book attributed to specific authors, the other two being Psalms 101 and 103, both attributed to David. Psalm 90 is the basis of one of Isaac Watts' most beloved hymns, Our God, Our Help in Ages Past. Again, Plummer points out, or suggests, I should say, that it is a very mournful composition. That's not quite right, as we're going to see, but it's... Admittedly, the reason for why it was incorporated into the funeral service of the Church of England and is often read at funeral services, uh, particularly of people that are at least familiar enough with the Psalms to know exactly where 
the text comes from. But it's not entirely doleful. If you're looking at the text with me, it begins with resignation and longing, but it ends with resolve and longing. It begins with the vacuity or emptiness of human life, temporal existence, but it it ends with the hope of satisfaction in life and the believer's confidence in an eternal God. It begins with a candid lament and ends with a robust declaration of theologically informed conviction. In short, it begins with a very temporal focus, but it ends with an eternal focus. And if I might say, that eternal focus is the reason why I wanted to share this psalm today. Because that, that eternal focus, that eternal perspective, I think is something that's very much missing from much of contemporary preaching this campus uh, accepted, in, in part. Contemporary preaching is very much focused on this life. And there are, of course, we know a whole type of gospel. We call it the prosperity gospel, which is an aberration, a heresy, really. But in many places, milder forms of the prosperity gospel are given out for those who would never go quite so far. And that's why this perspective is really needed. Now, as I've gone through those little statements, it begins with, if you've been looking at the text, you probably say, well, I wonder if you're looking at the same text because it looks a little bit different than that. Here's an insight for you. At times, a psalmist, here Moses and at other times David, will actually put what is in effect the end at the beginning. That the object or the purpose of the psalmist's writing is actually something that is put forward. So the conclusion is actually given first. This happens in a couple of other psalms, very famous uh, psalm of Psalm 32 by David, the uh, the psalm of lament over his sin, it actually begins with the blessing of those, the ones who's forgiven, but then it goes through the steps, the confession, repentance, and communion with God, counsel from God, seeking God, that then results in that blessing. Psalm 62 is another example of that. So what we see here in Psalm 90, in verses 1 and 2, is actually the believer's confidence and hope what the psalmist is aiming at. And so that's why when I read the text, I actually read the first two verses again at the end, because that's how we're going to approach it today. The beginning that I'm talking about, it starts in verse 3, which opens part 1, the temporal perspective, and what follows in part 2, in verses 12 and following, is the perspective of the believer, or if you will, the Christian. So you've surmised already that there are two parts to this psalm. And Psalm 90 is, as I said, the only psalm attributed to Moses, and the key is to find out when in the life of Moses this was written. So to that end, let me, let me imagine a little story of an imaginary young Hebrew man living in Egypt just before the Exodus. Put your mind there. This is a Hebrew young man in his 20s, let's say, who's known nothing but slavery and hardship and bondage his entire life. One day he hears that a fellow Hebrew, a former slave, a runaway slave, Moses, has actually come back with a message of hope and a message of deliverance. And at first there was elation, but then there was disappointment, you know, Exodus chapter 5. 
still, our young man lived through the days and months of the plagues in Egypt. Like everyone else, he was awed and frightened at what he saw. He saw the Egyptians suffering. He knew that the uh, Israelites were not facing the same kind of trouble. Eventually, you know the story here. You've seen the movie. He was taking part in the Passover, and he was one of the tens of thousands leaving Egypt in the actual exodus. He was one of those who was there. He saw it. He saw the sea divided. He saw the nation pass through on dry ground, and he looked with fascination and horror as the waters covered the Egyptians, and they drowned in an instant. He was part of the nation that traveled to Sinai. He was one of those who grumbled for water and grumbled for food and grumbled for meat. But he, ate, he drank the water and he ate the manna and he ate the quail, just nevertheless. When, when he was there, he saw battles fought and won, Exodus chapter 17. Like the whole nation, he was awed at Sinai, even more awed by the law that God had given to Moses, Exodus chapter 20. He was appalled by the scene of the golden calf and frightened and awed by how the Lord dealt with those idolaters. He enthusiastically contributed to the building of the tabernacle, was properly impressed with the rituals and ceremonies and requirements of the law. Eventually, he was one of those that traveled to the very edge of the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, and he was there He too was disheartened by the report of the ten who deemed the people of the land too fierce and the conquest too daunting. He and the nation's fear led to faithlessness, led to failure. So he was one of those whose unfaithfulness was judged by God with 40 years of meaningless wandering in the wilderness. Listen to Numbers chapter 14, beginning at verse 28. I'll just read it. This is the Lord speaking to those people, pronouncing his judgment. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number, from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Surely you shall not come into the land which I swore to settle you, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, And Joshua, the son of Nun, your children, however, whom you said would become prey, I will bring them in. They will know the land which you have rejected. But as for you, your corpses will fall in this wilderness. Your sons shall be shepherds for 40 years in this wilderness, and they will suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness. According to the number of days which you spied out, The land, 40 days, for every day you shall bear your guilt, even 40 years. Now, I want you to keep that correlation of days and years in mind. Think about days and years. And you will know my opposition. I, the Lord, have spoken this. Surely I will do to all this evil congregation who are gathered here together against me in this wilderness They shall be destroyed, and there they will die. 
That's exactly what they did. And that's where our little tale of our imaginary Hebrew man ends. He died in the wilderness, along with the entire first generation of those who left Egypt in the Exodus. Many commentators place the psalm right there, right at the, right at the end of this period of 40 years, or 38, however you calculate them, of wandering in the wilderness. 40 years after the fear and failure and faithlessness of Numbers 14, years in which an entire generation died, and even after the death of Moses' sister Miriam and after the death of his brother Aaron, at an advanced age himself, here's Moses, whose thoughts turn to what he has just lived through with that generation for 40 years. The brevity of life and the inevitability of death. Now, I don't want you to get the wrong impression here. This is not a psalm of morose and morbid uh, concentration on the subject of death. He's being realistic, or as James Montgomery Boyce says in his commentary on the Psalms, he's just plain, realistic thinking that marks these words. Okay, now we're ready for the exposition itself of Psalm 90. Here's Moses looking at our Hebrew man, an old man now like himself in the wilderness, just growing older, just waiting to die. And he saw many who died. Then he writes this psalm. Let me give you the outline, and I've already sort of foreshadowed. The outline here is in two parts. Part one is in verses 3 through 11, in which Moses contemplates two dismal, undeniable realities of the temporal perspective. Two dismal, undeniable realities of the temporal perspective. Flowing out of that, in part two, are three prayers of the believer, or if you will, the Christian, in the light of those two realities. Three prayers in the light of the two realities. And then, as I said, bringing the first two verses to the end, one overarching reality that is the believer's confidence. So two dismal, undeniable realities of the temporal perspective, three prayers of the believer in the light of those dismal realities, and one overarching reality of the believer's confidence. Let's get into it. Two dismal, undeniable realities of life in the purely temporal perspective, and here they are. Reality one is, life is brief. This is in verses 3 through 6 and verse 10. And the second is, sin is the reason why life is brief. And that is in verses 7 through 9 and also verse 11. By the way, you can see that the outline is not that difficult, but in some ways it's not that straightforward either. So I will spare you the uh, details of literary analysis here and just kind of go with me on these verses and things. And uh, we can talk about why I put these verses together the way I do later. Life is brief. Look at verse 3 again. You turn man back into dust and say, Return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. 
You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning, they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning, it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening, it fades and withers away. Moses writes that men are dust. That's a very common sort of uh, scriptural uh, concept. It's a familiar reference. We don't use that kind of language anymore, do we? That uh, people are just dust. Actually, the Hebrew term here, daka, is related to the idea of destruction, and it's translated that way in the King James Version. The image, of course, relates to our bodies. They were just dust. So many fine-looking specimens, particularly here in California. They're just dust. They will be, as it were, Spurgeon says, crushed and ground to powder. Think about that image of dust. First of all, it's dry. It's just dry, and it's, it's unappealing. But even more than the, its dryness is the fact that dust is just simply insubstantial. It's just dust. I mean, we're not even the major clumps of dust under your bed. The the idea here is that we're the dust that's floating around in the room right now, and you don't see it. But if the sunlight were streaming in, you'd see those little specks of dust in the air. That's us. That's us. We're ephemeral. We're just dust. We're insignificant. Note this. The psalmist is not saying that dust is our fate. It's not by some impersonal law that this is our destiny. The Lord says, look at it, return, O children of men. It's his decree. Dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. That's just a fact. Spurgeon says it again. God resolves, and man dissolves. Obviously, Moses is drawing a comparison here between eternity and the brevity of life. He uses the the phrase, a thousand years, very similar, of course, to 2 Peter 3.8, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, for a thousand years in your sight. But the point is not to sort of try and make a calculation of days. This is not an exchange rate of time, that is, for every thousand years, that's for the Lord, that's like a day for him, and so uh, he just calculates, we can calculate. That's not, that's not really the idea. Uh, it's a way to express his otherness, his transcendence. He is above time. He's transcendent with respect to time. The idea is he doesn't regard time the same way we do. He's not bound by time. We very much are bound by time. Again, think of a thousand years. Think of a thousand years with me. Can you just for a moment, let's think of a thousand years. Okay, what, was, what happened a thousand years ago? And, and what happened a thousand years before that? Can, can you get your mind around a thousand years? I don't think you can really. I mean, come on, let's be honest. We toss around terms like a thousand years or even a hundred years. Here's a, here's a thought. I'm I'm full of these kinds of little thoughts here this morning. Here's a thought. If the Lord tarries within a hundred years, every single person within the sound of my voice right now will be dead. You are really happy that you have come to this session. (laughs) 
A thousand years, a thousand years. We can't even think about a thousand years. It's like yesterday when it passes away. Yesterday, can you think about yesterday? Stop for a few moments with me and think about your yesterday. You got up, you ate some breakfast. You, it was a Saturday, so some of you probably didn't have to go to work. Maybe others did. You, you went about your day. You did a few things. Uh, I spent 120 minutes in exercise. It's a lot easier to say 120 minutes in exercise than it is to do 120 minutes of exercise. I watched the Cubs finally win. I, uh, I, uh, I spent some time doing some other things. I went over this uh, message once again. Uh, I watched some meaningless news on the TV that I didn't really care about. I, I tried to count up the number of earthquakes that have happened since the big one. And then I went to bed. How long did that take me? Two minutes, three minutes, if you were thinking about your day yesterday. That's how fast yesterday went. But it's, it's even shorter than that. Look at, it's like a watch in the night. That's like, a watch in the night was like four hours long. A watch in the night, you know how that works. There you are in bed, you, you wake up, you look over at the clock. Ah, it's 2.13 a.m. Mmm. You snuggle back down in and you go to sleep again. And then in a matter of moments, that 6 a.m. alarm is going off. And you go, what happened? What happened? That's a thousand years to the Lord. That's a thousand years. It's like that. It's nothing. It goes by so quick. And what happens in that thousand years to the children of men? What happens to them? Several images are given here. First, you have swept them away like a flood. The, the, the psalmist pictures something like a flash flood. The image evokes suddenness, destruction. That's, that's the thing about floods. They're powerful. They're fast. They're unpredictable. The Johnstown flood of 1889, very famous. You may have heard of it. Read uh, David McCullough's book on the Johnstown flood. At 4.07 p.m., the town was hit with a 40-foot high wall of water and debris, and within 10 minutes... Half of the city was gone, and 2,000 people were crushed and drowned in a matter of minutes. Most of those people who were killed in that flood had no idea what was coming. They were going about their daily lives, and the next thing is a, a wall of water swept them away like a flood, and they died. They fell asleep. Another image in verse 5, we're like grass. We're like morning glories. My grandmother had morning glories. She assured me that they always opened up in the morning and they were very beautiful. I never saw them. Morning glories would always close up by the, by the time I got up. By the end of the day, it's dry and it's gone and it's brown and it's withered like California hills in August. We moved here last year, and everybody said, how do you like California? My wife says, it's golden. They said, no, it's brown. It's brown. <laughs> Look at verse 10, because it actually goes with these verses. Look at verse 10. It's a very well-known verse. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for it is soon gone and we fly away. Notice here, we're going to see this a couple of times. I've already seen it in Numbers. 
correlation of days and years. Did you notice that? The psalmist speaks of days and years. We think in terms of years. Psalmist wants us to start thinking of our lives in terms of days. Plummer notes, there is a force in uniting days and years in the same sentence. It reminds us that our years are really made of days, that our lifetime may be counted as days as well as by years. Counted by years, they go by rather slowly. I know for some of us, it seems like more quickly. But counted by days, they would be ticked off with unnerving regularity. And, and by the way, we shouldn't count up the number of days we've lived. We should be counting down to the number of days left. We'll go back to that when we look at verse 12. Notice this. This is not a promise, by the way. You know, the, the 70, 80 years, it's not a promise. It's the best case scenario. 70 or 80 years is not that long. I just came back from visiting my mother in Iowa, and every time I go back to my hometown in Iowa, I always go through the, uh, the obits. I always scan through the obituaries to see if there's anybody in there that I, that I knew. I know this is a little... This is a little Orbit of the guess, but uh, I scan through. If the deceased is 80 or 90 years, I'll, I'll look it over, but you know, 80 or 90, I don't spend that much time glancing over it. But if they died in their 60s, I want to know why. <laughs> I'm 66, by the way. I want to know why. I want to know if it was something preventable. Okay, so I can prevent it. Or if it was something that they could have had treated. It's really unnerving to read an obituary that says he died at 64 of natural causes. It was an age-related illness. We're not guaranteed 70 or 80 years. The pair of terms there, labor and sorrow, Calvin has inconveniences and infliction, affliction. Yeah, just be honest. I think some of us have just gotten so used to it that we don't realize that most of life is one inconvenience after another. I just told you, I flew back here from Chicago. Literally, I'm telling you folks, the weather wasn't that bad, and one pop-up thunderstorm landed right over O'Hare Airport as my plane was supposed to take off. Long two-hour layover uh, delay later, I finally took off. Only to land it, as I told you, at LAX and experience an earthquake. <laughs> Life is just loaded with these inconveniences. Toil and vanity, trouble and mischief. The days of our lives are not easy. And not much good happens in most of them. In effect, Moses says, even the best of our years, years of pride, are actually few, hard to come by, full of labor, full of sorrow, and fleeting. But again, this is not fate. Understand, Spurgeon says, this mortality is not accidental. Neither was it inevitable in the original of our nature, but sin provoked the Lord to anger, and therefore, thus we die. This is especially true of that generation, right? Why are they dying in the wilderness? It's because of their sin, and it's not just true of them. So that was the first dismal reality. Life is very brief. Here's the second dismal reality. Sin is the reason why life is brief. Look at verse 7. 
For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. That generation that Moses is writing this psalm about lived with death. It's been calculated that the number that left Egypt would have, and then died in the wilderness, that second generation, before the second generation rose up, would have been in the millions. We don't need to get bogged down, I think, in trying to calculate the numbers here, but as, as that generation aged, thinking of our young man again, there must have been hundreds of deaths, hundreds, each month, each week. Dozens of deaths every single day. An unending stream of funerals. They lived with the reality of death staring them in the face. And so do we. But we managed to, to hide it. It used to be when Uncle A.B. died, we brought him home and propped him up in the front parlor of, of the family home. Had a wake. Can you imagine going home, having to look at that same room where the casket had been? Now let's take this, let's get this out. Let's go to the church. Let's take it to the church. But then again, you, you come on a Sunday morning, they've got communion table set up right where Uncle Aby had been the day before. No, no, let's get it out of the church. Let's take it to the funeral parlor. You go to the funeral parlor reluctantly and only when you absolutely have to. We have segregated death out of our daily experience. When my wife worked at Valparaiso University in Indiana, right across the street, right across the highway from where she worked, she got to look out in this beautiful park. Actually, it was a cemetery. Every day, she's sitting there doing her work, looking at the cemetery. She said she didn't mind. Except when there was something going on there, and then you just close the blinds, you know, out of respect, you know, watch them. But every single time, and I mean every single time we drove by that cemetery, I said the same thing. In fact, one time when we were driving by, I wasn't going to say it. My wife said, you going to say it? <laughs> I said, uh, no, I thought I wouldn't say it this time. Come on, go ahead and say it. Every single time I would say, people are dying to get in there. I told you, this, this whole message is full of those little insights. We are living in an environment of, of death. We don't even know it. Every single death was a reminder of the sin of unfaithfulness and the sin of unbelief and the sin of lack of trust and the sin of fear of man. And the sin and failure to keep going under God's promise. They died in the wilderness. They died short of the promised land. They died dry and barren. They died and ended their lives just the way Numbers 14 said it. Again, their corpses fell in the wilderness. And every single day, it was a reminder of his anger and his fury Note the same attributes appear again in verse 11. 
Death was a constant reminder of their iniquities and their secret sins, verse 8. That's a chilling thought, the secret sins. The sins we don't think anybody else knows. We die because of those sins, because God knows. And don't forget that this is the time in which they built the tabernacle. So what have they got to distract themselves from all of this death that's happening around them? Well, they have the tabernacle system. And the tabernacle system was a system in which every day animals died because of sin. Every day they were reminded sin means death. Sin means death. They were dying and animals were dying. The entire system was a refrain. Warren Worsby says, every single obituary in the newspaper is a reminder that the wages of sin is death. We just refuse to look around. But friends, it doesn't do us any good because we're all going to die. We're going to die because of the fury of the Lord. The anger of the Lord against it. I, I need to take this one step further. Look at verse 11. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? God's anger against sin is not just temporal, but it is eternal. Do not fear the one who kills the body, but rather fear him who is able to destroy body and soul in hell. Spurgeon writes this, What the power of God's anger is in hell and what it would be on earth, were it not in mercy restrained, no living man can rightly conceive. Modern thinkers rail at Milton and Dante and Bunyan and Baxter for their terrible imagery. But the truth is that no vision of poet or denunciation of holy seer can ever reach to the dread height of this great argument, much less go beyond it. The wrath to come has its horrors rather diminished than enhanced by the description of the dark lines of human fancy. It baffles words. It leaves the imagination far behind. Beware ye that forget God, lest he tear you in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Who is able to stand against this justly angry God? Who will dare to rush upon the bosses of his buckler or tempt the edge of his sword? Be it ours to submit ourselves as dying sinners to this eternal God who can, even at this moment, Command us to be dust, and thence to hell. We sin, we die, we deserve to die. Plummer says we deserve worse than whatever befalls us in this world. So, is that it? Is that it? Some of you of my vintage of age remember a number of years ago, a singer, I don't know her very well, named Peggy Lee, became very famous at the end of her career with a song entitled, Is That All There Is? Is that all there is? Is that it? Well, it is incumbent upon me, friends, to tell you that apart from God, which is to say apart from Christ, that is all there is. If you do not know Christ, if you have never repented of your sin, if you are living that brief, empty, unsatisfying, meaningly existence now, you are faced with eternal judgment in the beyond. It's pretty dismal. Thank God there is a different perspective for life in Christ, but let me be clear. These are the alternatives. A 
a dismal, empty life now with nothing but the prospect of eternal judgment, or with Christ, a very, very different perspective. The only way to get to part two of this psalm is through Christ. And if you don't know Christ, then the rest of this is not for you. In the light of these two dismal perspectives, Moses offers three prayers, and again, that one eternal perspective. Three prayers. The first prayer is found in verse 12. Verse 12 is a prayer for wisdom. It's the key verse, by the way. This is what everything really turns on. Verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. There are two explicit petitions here that we'll mention and two implied admonitions. Let me give you the admonitions first just so that I don't forget them. The admonitions are don't waste your time and do get wisdom. Look at the first petition. So teach us to number our days. By the way, the mention of days here, again with years, we're going to see in a moment. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that we should actually count up the number of days that we have left. But years ago, I heard an expositor who suggested that you do that. And years ago, I, I preached from Psalm 90, and uh, I did that. And, and after I added up the number of my days, I don't tell you how old I was exactly then, but after I added up the number of my days, I had something in excess of 12,000 days. Yeah, 12,000 days, well, that's a lot. Over the years, I have kept counting up how many days. For your information, to age 70, I have about 1,500 days left. To age 80, I have about 5,100 days left. Either way, it doesn't sound like much. But it's no guarantee. It's, it's not the point. Think about this. When you die and they put your name on that plate or gravestone or wherever, they will carve your birth date in there as well. And you know what that is because you celebrate that every year when it comes around, right? Your birthday. Did you know every year since the day you were born, the calendar date of your death day also comes by? They're going to put that date on there. Every year, that's come and gone. July the 7th, 20... Whatever. The point is, there is a number to your days. And, and here the idea isn't add them up, but count them down. Listen, you don't have years. Not really. There's no guarantee. And we shouldn't even think in terms of years. Listen carefully. You literally only have days left to live. You only have days left to live. You don't live years at a time. You live days at a time. So you literally only have days left to live. And they're counting down. So, don't waste your days. Don't waste your time. You don't have time to waste What were they doing in the wilderness? They were killing time. I have to tell you, with especially the undergrad students that I used to teach, and sometimes now even with the seminarians, 
So what are you going to do? Well, I'm just going to kill some time. Just, you, you don't have time to kill, man. You just don't. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't take a day off, go to a baseball game, take a vacation. We, we need time off. But it doesn't mean we should goof off. You really don't have time to waste. Waste of your time. Just a few examples. Binge-watching mind-numbing melodramas on Netflix. Waste. Obsessing with politics. Waste. Ruminating over your inequities of life. Harboring bitterness for the past. Posting pictures of yourself on social media. Waste. <laughs> Spending time watching videos on social media. Except for cat videos. They really do enrich your life. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. And most especially, listen, you foolishly waste your time by failing to repent of your sin. That's a waste of time. And you tragically waste your life by living in sin. You don't have time for sin and nonsense. Stop wasting time. This is a prayer for the Lord to keep reminding us every day. There's a number of our days and it's diminishing. And we need that. So second petition, we may have a heart of wisdom. That we may have a heart of wisdom. The, the idea of the heart of here really means life of. In both Hebrew and in Greek, the term for heart is the seed of one's thoughts, emotions, and the source of one's deeds. A heart of wisdom is, is wise thinking, wise and proper affections, and wise behavior. So when he says to have a heart of wisdom, it really means just a life of wisdom. We need a life of wisdom. And we'd have to really need wisdom. Again, the idea of, in Hebrew of wisdom is having a skill. Think this, think this, this is an important point, so think with me here. The idea of having wisdom is having a skill. The guys that had the ability to do artistic work for the tabernacle, uh, Bezalel and his buddies, they, they were said to have wisdom in these crafts. Somebody has wisdom in something, is to have a skill in something. You, just think about what it takes for people to have a skill. When people have a skill, it's just maybe my theory a little bit, but when people have a skill, we really don't notice it that much. Honestly, people who have a skill make things look easy. People who have a skill for golf, I mean, golf. I watch golf. Like, how hard can that be? All right, seriously, they're making millions of dollars. What are they doing? It's just, just, you know, Winston Churchill said, golf is a curious sport in which grown men chase a small ball around a cow pasture seeking to strike it with implements ill-designed for the purpose. <laughs> Golf. I could do this. I get a bucket of balls and I go out to the driving range and I get all there and I go. <laughs> Somebody's got a skill. Somebody, I mean, again, they make it look easy. Somebody who plays a musical instrument. Somebody who's skillful in singing. They make it look easy. By the way, when somebody does stuff here at this church and does you know, the music, and they're singing. 
it's not like the little churches that I've pastored and been in for a long time. Some, some, poor, some poor saint gets up there uh, and croaks something out from the bottom of his soul, and it's terrible, and you're just pulling for him. Come on, man. Come on, man. You can do this. Here, we don't even know. We, don't, we sit back and just enjoy it and are, are taken away because he got skill. You don't notice it. Skill. We notice when people don't have skill, right? When people are driving their cars on the highways and they don't have skill. And you want to say, you're not very good at this, man, are you? You're not good. Go, go, go away. We don't, Christians don't have the same kind of gestures in the car, right? You know, just go, just go. That's what I do. They, they're not good at it. People that are not good at, at parenting. When did major airlines become the Greyhound bus lines of the air? Did you ever notice this? You know, so many people, I mean, it's expensive. And they're dragging five, six kids on the plane, you know. And they're all using their their outdoor voice the whole time. And you want to say, you're not very good at this. How come you keep having so many? You're not good. But you can't. You can't say stuff like that, can you? You really can't. They're not good at it. Listen. The people who are good at living, you don't notice. The people who live, the people who live life well, you don't even notice. Why? Because they're living well. It's the people that are like pinballs in a pinball machine. They're just rolling from one bumper to the next. They're just one crisis after another. Those are the people that you want to say, you're not, you know, you're not doing very well. And there are lots of those kind of people, evidence of the fact that we keep pumping out biblical counselors. And we need biblical counselors. Because people aren't very good at it. We need skill. We need skill for how we do this. How are we going to get skill? Well, of course. The heart skills to live life, a life of wisdom, come from Scripture. We, We know that. It comes from asking God. James says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously without reproach and it will be given to him. But, but my point right here is now is that you need, you need to number your days. You only have so many days, which means, look, listen, you're either developing your skill or you're losing it. You're either working on making your skill better or your skills are eroding. You don't have time to waste. You don't have several days that you can give up living wisely and think you can make that up at the end because you just don't have as many days as you think you have. Life is short. you got to keep working on your skills for living. Number your days. Think about it. Quickly, second prayer. A prayer for satisfaction and gladness, which is to say, find your satisfaction in God, which is to say, find your satisfaction in Christ, verses 13 through 15. Do return, O Lord, how long will it be, and be sorry for your servants? Here's a, there's a note of repentance there, even though it's asking the Lord to return. It's, it's the psalmist is saying, Lord, Lord, do return. Be sorry for us. Take pity on us. Now notice the, the terms that keep popping up here in verses 14 and 15. Oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days that you have afflicted us and the years that we have seen evil. All right, stay with me here because now it gets a little more positive. 
What, what's he praying for? He's praying for satisfaction in life. In spite of their faithlessness and perfidy, they are your servants. Take pity on us, Lord. The psalmist pleads for the only real satisfaction, the only substantial joy and genuine gladness to be handed, had in this life is comes from your loving kindness. If you will be loving kind to us, then we will know gladness. Let me, let me tell you that there is no gladness, there is no satisfaction, there is no joy in part one of this psalm. There's none. That's where the rest of the world is. And sadly, friends, so many Christians keep thinking they can go back and dabble in a little bit of that fun and a little bit of that, and it's empty and it's deadly and it's void and it's empty and it's meaningless. And we know where joy and satisfaction really is, and it's in the loving kindness of our God, and there is none else. Only those, listen, who know the fury of the Lord's wrath against sin fly to him and his loving kindness, his hesed, his, his, his provision for, gracious provision for those who will come to him for his unmerited favor. That's grace, you know this. Again, only a full-throated acknowledgement that our afflictions are deserved will yield the genuine gladness that comes from knowing his loving kindness. Third prayer for meaningful work, verses 16 and 17. Oh, by the way, I, I, I skipped something. Make sure I do it. Make us glad according to the days that you have afflicted us and the years that we have seen evil. See the, see the turn of days and years there again? Only now it's reversed. Now our days of joy and gladness are going to be like years at a time with the Lord. Third prayer, meaningful work, which is to say find your meaning in life in God, which is to say find your meaning in life in Christ. Verse 16, let your work appear to your servants, let your majesty to, your, to their children. Okay, let your work appear to your servants. There's a lot to be said about that, but very briefly, look, the world is a wonderful place in spite of the fact that we're living in a Genesis 3 world, in spite of the fact of the dismal realities that I just mentioned, there's plenty for us to, to appreciate, but it's, it's because of the Lord that it's there. And that means that we can appreciate it even better. The beauty of creation, the joy of music, the, 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 the wonder of art and, and proper kinds of literature, the, 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 what the Lord has allowed humankind to to produce is ultimately a work of the Lord. Calvin says this, that this is the light that enlightens every man. So, so the beauty of wisdom and art and literature and music and all of that, that's the Christians to enjoy. That Listen, that's their escape from meaninglessness and death. That's, that's the mask that they try to use to, to paper over they're dismal realities. But for us, we recognize that's the work of the Lord. We appreciate that as from Him. And of course, the greatest appreciation from the Lord is the salvation that He provides for us. Let, the, let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. Notice the word of hope there, to their children. Instead of just turning over 
the, the, the promises of God to the next generation. Now we appropriate them and we bequeath them to the next generation. Verse 17, let the favor of our Lord God be upon us and confirm the work of our hands. Notice it's repeated. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. The third petition assumes that life is not meant to be just enduring calamity and muddling through. There's meaning and purpose and value in this life. But you might say, well, in the light of the two realities, where, where is that meaning and value in these lives? We are built to serve, to work, to thrive. Life must have some kind of meaning other than just waiting around to become fertilizer. Adam was put in the garden in Genesis 2 to till it and to keep it. Those words, by the way, till it and to keep it, are the same words used of the priests caring for the tabernacle, which indicates that the, the Adam's work in the garden was meant to be like priestly work. It's a mediatorial work. He was to do something. God creates, a little bit of Genesis 1 and 2 here. God creates Genesis 1, refines it Genesis 2. All the days of Genesis 1, create and refine. First and fourth day, second, fifth day, third, sixth day. Create and refine, create and refine. This is how God's, this is good. Why did he start out formless and void? Create and refine. And then he delegates this to, to man as his vice regent and says, now keep refining it. Keep refining it. Of course, that Adam fell and failed in that process. This is why, by the way, the second Adam's going to come and he's going to actually do in time and space and history on this planet, in a kingdom, what the first Adam failed at with regard to the creation mandate. He's going to fulfill and we're finally going to see. You think this world is good now? Wait till you see what Jesus does to it. And I'm not saying what pastor says about that. I'm, I'm going the other direction. He's going to refine it. We're going to see the potentialities that are inherent in this creation that we have not seen. Why? Because the earth brings forth thorns and thistles. Now it's cursed right now. We're not seeing it the way we're supposed to see it. It's not bringing forth everything for human flourishing. And when Jesus comes and rules on this earth, we're going to see exactly what this creation was meant to be like. We're going to see the work of his hands and in the meantime, we're asking, confirm the work of our hands. Right now, in a Genesis 3 world, we are utterly dependent for his favor to confirm the work of our hands. We need him to make our work something that's lasting and meaningful, something that's for his glory and praise. Listen, meaning in this life is only to be found in serving him. You're never going to find meaning in serving yourself. Why not serve yourself? Because you're dust. You're not enough. You're not worth it. And deep down in, in human hearts, they know that. Why don't they just fix themselves? Why don't they reform themselves? Why don't they just clean up their act? Because deep down in their hearts, they know, I'm not worth that. It's too much work. It's too much effort. If we're going to find something meaningful in this life, it's because we are in total dependence upon him for that meaning. You, Lord, you confirm the work of your hands. Make it worthwhile. Make it lasting. Make it for your glory. That goes for ditch diggers, car mechanics, Walmart checkout people, doctors and preachers. 
Only when we do, listen, everything of him, through him, for him, will it mean anything at all. All for Jesus. However, that's not even the ultimate meaning and purpose and value in this life. Again, Spurgeon says, Men are led by reflections upon the brevity of time to give earnest attention to eternal things. We're made for God, made for eternity. Sin shortens our temporal life, and sin shatters and ruins our eternity unless we fly to the one who is our eternal refuge. Back to verses 1 and 2. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Dwelling place, the word there actually means refuge. Before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Note the first note that Moses compares the most substantial, ancient, imposing, permanent, stable, and unchanging parts. I wrote this before the earthquake. (laughs) Are the very mountains. And quoting Spurgeon, God is more ancient, more imposing, and more constant than those elder giants of nature. Indeed, it was he who created them, gave birth to them. And we don't have time to expand on this, but this is, this is the key to understanding. He is the creator. He's the creator. We're creatures. He is God, and we are not. He is everlasting. We are ephemeral. Only God is older than dirt. Look at the last line of verse 2. One of the most expressive and theologically rich lines in the Psalms. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Hebrew is a language that uses very concrete uh, terms. It doesn't have abstract ideas like Greek does, but for, for ideas like eternity, which is really what he's trying to express, eternity. For that, I think it actually makes the point better here. Again, Plummer says, this is the highest description of the eternity of God to which human language can reach. Tozer says, from vanishing point to vanishing point. God is eternal. You know eternity, right? If I talk about eternity, you got, you got that in your mind? Eternity? You know what eternity is, don't you? Okay, eternity. You understand eternity? No, you don't. I, you know. No, we don't. We, we don't. Eternity? You can't even get a thousand years, okay? What makes you think you've got eternity down? Eternity, eternity. We're bound by time so much. This is beyond us. Eternity? Yes. He is self-existent, transcendent, before time, beyond time, timeless in his being, no beginning, yet no ending, infinite, immortal, immutable, unchanging, Unmeasured, constant, unmoving, immovable, impassable, yet eternally relatable. Whenever I teach on the subject of the attributes of God, I, I have my students picture a diamond. Picture a diamond very quickly. Picture a diamond with a very large diamond in my hand right here. Picture a diamond. What is a diamond? A diamond is actually made up of one thing all the way through, right? And yet there are these facets on them. Facets. You can't take one facet off of a diamond and study it separately from the other facets, can you? You can't take one attribute of God and take it off and and study it separately. All of the attributes of God are what they are because of all the other attributes. Mention one attribute and you have described everything about God. 
God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and is being, wisdom, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And that doesn't even come close. By the way, this is theology. Plummer says, he would have religion without theology, will build a house without a foundation. This is theology. Where do we go for meaning in life? Theology. <laughs> you want meaning in life? You want some antidote to that meaningless existence that is what everybody is muddling through apart from God? Then you want some theology. People ask, what are we going to be doing in heaven? Heaven is one long class in theology. Can I get an amen? Punctuated by worship services in which we worship him for what we've just learned. And by the way, the diamond is never going to be exhausted. He's eternal. He transcends time. Herman Boving says, eternity is identical with God's essence. It implies the fullness of his essence. God is not only eternal, he is his own eternity from everlasting to everlasting. Those thoughts are lifted up. You are God. Listen to Psalm 103, where David picks up some of these same images. I'll make this quick. Psalm 103, verses 13 through 18. They're the middle of the verse. So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. He knows our frame. He's mindful that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like grass, as the flower of the field, so he flourishes. You hear the echoes, right? When the wind passes over it, it is no more, and its place it acknowledges no longer. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting to those who fear him and his righteousness to his children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts to do them. Yes, we are dust. We're grass. We're here today. We're gone tomorrow. But if we fear him, love him, know him, and serve him, if our lives are in him, in him we live and move and have our being, Paul said. If we are in God, if we are in Christ, then we are in touch with eternity, the everlasting one. You know this. Let me pause here. You know this. Why is it so hard? This is the whole point of my entire message. We have to develop this eternal perspective on life. There's no meaning without it. There's no hope without it. Why do we find it so difficult to do this, friends? It's because we settle too easily for passing comforts. We're adapted too much to lesser things. We take the easy path, even if it's a path through the barren wilderness, the way that generation did. I have, to, I have to tell you, I'm running out of time, but I have to tell you right now, my homeowners association got on my case because part of my lawn died. I've been trying all summer to get that back, okay? It just won't come green again. I went out and bought some green paint, painted the yard. Salt. <laughs> Salt. I did. All of those other things are ephemeral passing. They're lies. They, they, they offer contentment and satisfaction and meaning and value 
and they don't pay off. They're like the fool in Luke 12 who had barns filled with all good things. And what happened? The Lord came to him and said, you're a fool. You devote yourself to those things, you're a fool. No life, no meaning, no value. And worst of all, no eternal life apart from him who is everlasting. Devote your life to him. Devote your thoughts to him. Devote your time to him. Montgomery Boyce writes, James Montgomery Boyce writes, Therefore the person who is anchored in God is eternally secure. Moreover, the one who trusts the Lord has a secure dwelling place in him. Dwelling place means refuge, a place of safety. Look, there are no safe places on this planet. You can go to the safest place you can find and stand there until you die. And you'll discover you are never safe. And that would be pretty meaningless, wouldn't it? It won't last. We, take, we put so much thought into a money and the things of the earth. We waste time. God is our refuge. Eternity is our home. Are you putting your hope and all your earthly efforts into perishable things? As I'm asking you this, what are you going to do tomorrow? You got tomorrow. You got a day tomorrow. What are you going to do in that day tomorrow? You going to develop your skill? Are you going to go right back into the world and do exactly what you've done before. We must anchor our temporal lives and seek our satisfaction and meaning in life in Him. Paul said, We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but as what is unseen. What is seen is temporary. This is all an illusion. We are living in the matrix. Only God is real. Only God is worth living for. Only Christ is where satisfaction and meaning and value is to be found. Listen, the only thing you are taking with you into eternity is your relationship with Jesus Christ. Christ must be the purpose of your life, the goal of your life, the satisfaction of your life, the meaning of your life. All of Christ, all for Christ, all through Christ. Your temporal life and your eternal life is Christ. Or it's dust. Come to Christ. Trust Christ. I've often found that very trivial expressions contain a great deal of truth. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the very clear and blunt way that the psalmist approaches the issues of life, the issues that are before us. Lord, we know apart from Christ, it's meaningless, it's empty, it's purposeless, it's sound and fury signifying nothing. And we were once there. Oh God, keep us from going back. Mentally. Even physically. Spending one more day 
trying to make that temporal perspective work that we know doesn't work, doesn't satisfy. Satisfy us. Confirm the work of your hands. Keep us focused on Christ. Indeed, number our days for us. Remind us that it will be a remembrance and a calculation with joy and not regret. Everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Lord, finish the message in hearts and minds. Those of the vessel, keep hidden. Those of your truth, make solid in our hearts. In Jesus' name.